0: Good morning, everybody. Morning. morning. How's everybody doing this morning? I always don't like when people ask me that on Sunday mornings, because then I have to respond. And I'm an (laughs) introvert, and I'm awkward. But anyways, my name is Brock Orlowski, and uh, my wife Abby and I attend the North Site of Grace, and we have ever since its inception. uh, We attend out there with our two-year-old daughter, Raleigh, as well. And uh, I'm just grateful to be with you guys this morning. We don't get to make it out to New Haven very often, which I just learned this morning is now called the East Site. So apparently I'm out of the loop on that, and apparently downtown is actually central. So I'm learning a lot of new things this morning, and so I appreciate the information and all the announcements. Um, I did know that we were planning a church in Haiti, so that's at least one good thing. <laughs> but uh, before we dive in this morning, I want to pray for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig into the parables. God, I'm just grateful uh, for an opportunity just to share something you've laid on my heart, some of my own experiences and some of the things that uh, you want to communicate this morning. And so, God, I pray that these words would be yours, that this story would be yours, and uh, ultimately that would be a blessing and a tribute to you and your faithfulness, not only in my own life, uh, but just in the history of humanity. And so we're grateful, God, for this morning, and I pray that this would be just a tribute to you. Amen. All right, so behind me, you can see the parables are... Uh, starting starting the new series uh, that we're going to be kicking off, and last week you heard from Levi Francois, my brother-in-law, and I'm sure he was more articulate than I will be this morning. But I always make the joke that at least I'm taller, uh, and so I've got that going for me, um, and so you can be the judge this morning. But um, to take a look at parables, I thought it might be a good idea to share a parable with you. You can decide later if it's fact or fiction, but I want to share a parable with you this morning. So there was this little boy and just for story's sake we'll call him Brock okay and Brock had transitioned from a bike with training wheels to a bike without and so if you grew up in the 90s sort of like Brock did you used coaster brakes instead of the hand brakes anybody know what I'm talking about where you got to press back on the bike and you stop okay so one of Brock's favorite pastimes was to go as fast as he could and then slam on the coaster brake and skid and kind of turn his tires and do kind of, I don't know, fishtail, whatever you want to call that. It's one of Brock's favorite things. And so Brock begged his, his father for what seemed like years to get him a bike with the handbrakes because his neighbor got one. And Brock's father had a lot of uh, conversations with him saying, hey, you're not ready yet. You know, we want to make sure you're really comfortable on this bike first. We don't want to, you know, jump to anything too big and, you know, you get hurt or something happened. And Brock was devastated by this naturally. And so, out of his own uh, kind of defiance and not listening to his father, Brock said, Okay, well, next time I'm with my neighbors, I'm going to try out their new bike. And so, I asked my neighbors, I'm sorry, not mine, Brock's, of course, um, because this isn't a true story. But, uh, anyways, so Brock decided to borrow his his neighbor's bike. And of course, it had the handle brakes because that was the cool thing. And so, why not try the exact same thing you do on the coaster brake? You pedal as fast as you can, and you hammer the brakes. Now, the difference you might be already oohing and about is, uh, well, on, on the handbrake bikes, there's one for the front and one for the back. Well, Brock, <laughs> while he may have known this, wasn't really thinking of this when he was trying to be cool and show off for his friends, so he hammered on the front brake, and as you can imagine, he flew over the handlebars. First thing to meet the pavement was his face, skinning all along, scraping off about half of his face, losing three or four baby teeth along the way. So from that moment of meeting the pavement, Brock had a, had a pride conversation in his head of, well, I can either run away and never return home, or I can face my father and, and see if he was right. And so I, again, Brock runs back home, sees his dad working in the, in the yard, runs up crying covered in blood. Dad looks at him and just says, you all right? Well, of course not. And so Brock very well could have just been demoralized. He went inside his mom, more comforting and loving, cleaned him up, realized the the devastation of his face, and uh, cleaned him up and everything was all right. Later that evening, Brock had a conversation with his father that went along the lines of, you know, everything I do is in your best interest. And sometimes, even though it's not fun or easy, you have to listen to me and take my advice for what it's worth, and trust that I have your best interest in mind. So you may have already figured out that is, in fact, a true story. Uh, Gratefully, my face grew back and apparently wasn't much of an issue in at least being able to trick my wife into marrying me. So here we are today. Now, as we look at parables, I'm going to use that one as the example to kind of unpack a little bit of what parables are. And again, you've heard a little bit of this last week of just kind of what parables are all about, but it's always nice to hear some different perspective. And so we're going to talk about three different questions really quick to introduce a parable. So the first one is, well, what is a parable? And so a parable is, as a short story, it's something that is, is big in message, but short in plot or simplistic in actual content. You know, that story for me represents a time I should have listened to my father. I should have humbled myself. I should have taken advice and heeded a warning, but instead I just followed the desires of my heart and learned something the hard way. When all my father was trying to do is communicate something very big, like, hey, you need to have some self-awareness. You're not as cool as you think you are. Or, I want you to be safe. There was a big picture concept. Listen to your father. Yes, it might not be easy all the time, but you need to do it. And so obviously I learned that the hard way. And so parables are this way of communicating a large kingdom-focused principle in a very digestible form in story form. There's a reason history was passed down in oral form, and it's because it was easy to understand. When you hear stories of, and of myths and, and giants and all these, you know, nursery rhymes, it's easy to remember things. You know, teaching my two-year-old daughter some of the things like what not to do, it's, I often communicate with her, my wife laughs at me in, in a way that's not probably at her level, and that's my own fault, but then you teach her things that are obviously simple, but when, I don't want her to learn the hard way that a grill is hot, I want to tell her, hey, that's hot. We don't go by that. You listen to dad. Is she going to learn the hard way someday? Maybe. I hope she doesn't. But that's a parable. Second question is if we understand what parables are, then why did Jesus use them so much? Well, if you remember, Jesus hung out with disciples, and his disciples ranged in age from likely maybe 12 or 13, at the youngest, all the way up to Peter, who was at one time married. So we have this broad array of these teenagers, and these weren't necessarily the smartest of the smart. They weren't necessarily the the best and most educated, they were just simple everyday people. And so Jesus had to hand off the church to them after he was gone. So he needed to make sure they had something they could really grasp onto, something they could really sink their teeth into and remember long-term, but it had to also be big picture things. But they had to remember how to actually go about it. And so Jesus spends about a third of his whole message in all of his teachings in parables. And so we can get an idea that, okay, well, parables must be pretty important And as we read through the many parables that there are, we should probably be paying attention for obviously what's at the surface, but to dig a little bit deeper. The third question is, how can these parables apply to me now? Well, in 2019, things are a lot different than in biblical days, but that doesn't mean the message has changed all that much. We still make the same mistakes. We still sin. We've still fallen short of the glory of God, and we'll get to that more later. But Jesus has still communicated these kingdom principles that the church, us today, have a duty and responsibility and the joy and honor of living out. And so as we think about some of these things, and when we look at one parable in particular this morning, we need to remember that we can often see parables as a big picture of what God's trying to say. And so there's the idea of a picture, that parables give us a mirror of how we might reflect on how are we doing in light of these things. You look in a mirror, you evaluate what you see. Sometimes you don't like what you see. Sometimes you love what you see. Maybe it depends on the day. And finally, it allows us to give us or it allows us a window for us to look at the world and see things through the lens of God. So I believe Levi went through a little bit of this, and you'll probably see this over the course of the parables um, message series. But there are some principles that I want to communicate of what parables are all about. And so you can just go ahead and put all of the, the parts of the slide up there. Um, but again, short stories, kingdom truths, common, easy to understand language but also memorable in big picture. Simple, even though things might be confusing, there are life-changing principles within the parables. And finally, just remember these three simple things, picture, mirror, and window. It's a picture of what God wants to do. It's a mirror of how are we doing in light of that? How can we change? How can we adapt? How can we adjust? And finally, how can we see the world a little bit better through the eyes of of God? All right, so some of that might have been on repeat, but... Do we all feel like we have a pretty good understanding of the parables at this point? If not, your answer in six weeks will be yes, because you'll be hearing more and more. So what I want to do this morning is look at one parable, and it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But I want to do something a little bit different. I want to do something that was pretty common in the day of Scripture, and that was anytime Scripture was read in the temple, the tabernacle, or anywhere else, the congregation would stand for the reading. So if you could stand with me this morning, if you're able, I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, which is the par- uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. These robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day, or I'm sorry, twice a week, and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. God, we can take a look at these words and, and apply them so quickly to our lives, and I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us individually through this passage. We thank you for your word, the fact that you communicate to us through it, and that we can learn more about you through it. I pray that that would be true today from this parable. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So one of the best things about parables is they're typically pretty straightforward. And if you wanted to get just a simple message from it, you could. You could pull very simple concepts from a parable without trying very hard. And in fact, this one gives us the main idea straight away. And so I quote, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So that's about as as easy as it gets. So if you think you got it going on, and you don't care about others, well, this parable's for you. Congratulations. But there's actually a lot more going on in this parable that has a lot of relevance to us, and frankly, to me, this morning. And I think there's three main ideas that we're gonna see here um, in this this parable if we look a little closer. The first is that, as people, we need to be more self-aware. We need to have more of a self-awareness about our own strengths, our own weaknesses, our own part in this kingdom and in the kingdom work. The second is that we need to stop comparing what we do to others and vice versa. We need to stop playing this comparison game that our society has deemed to be very cultural and normal and just typical. The third is that God loves us despite our shortcomings. So as we unpack that, Yes, the main point is don't view yourself better than anyone else. Don't look down on anyone else for what they are doing in comparison to what you're doing. But as we read this, we get a glimpse into kind of how God wants to posture ourselves in our worship, in our prayer, in anytime we read scripture, and even just our daily life, in your workplace, in your school, how God wants us to posture our hearts toward him. And one of the biggest issues in our culture today is that people are not self-aware, People are not willing to look internally and see, this is my strength. This is my weakness. And you know what? That's okay to have strengths and weaknesses because that's how God made me. My wife's a big fan of the Enneagram, personally, and don't take any offense to this. I I don't read too far into that kind of stuff. I don't like being told I'm a number or I'm a shape or I'm a this and that, an animal, I don't know. But there is some merit to understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Calling to mind more self-awareness to what we are or what we are not. But one of the biggest things to go along with that is that often it's not just a lack of self-awareness, it's a lack of the, the desire to, and the refusal to acknowledge weakness and issues. You know, let's just give everybody a participation trophy so everybody feels the same, everybody just you know, feels comforted, and they go home. And I'm not saying that you know, a five-year-old needs to be told you're never going to make it in the MLB or the NBA or anything like that. We don't want to crush dreams. But we do need to start to instill more self awareness. That's something my father tried to do in me with the bike story. Clearly, it didn't take then, it took a little bit more down the road. When I look internally, I don't have a whole lot of humility in my life. I need more humility in my life. I don't show a lot of emotion in my life. That's a deficiency in myself. I acknowledge that, I confess that to you guys, that I have deep deficiencies in my emotional capacity. I once took a personality evaluation, and on an EQ question, I literally got a zero. That I was unable to, or unwilling to, acknowledge the emotion in the room. Pretty big deficiency. But my self-awareness of that allows me to be, and at least try, to become better at that. So, we've cultivated this societal norm that's built on success, power, money, status, all the things that, by the way, aren't bad. Those aren't bad things. But it makes it pretty clear when we read the parables and when we hear Jesus teach that those things, again, while they're not bad, they cloud our judgment and they sort of puff ourselves up in our own estimation and they skew our view of the rest of the world, whether it be people or circumstance. And so Jesus uses the Pharisees as an example of what not to do. And he uses the tax collector as somebody to emulate, which, by the way, is pretty culturally blasphemous. If you know anything about the Pharisees, they were the people that were The cream of the crop, they were the ones that followed all the laws, did all the right things, and the tax collectors were the ones who stole. They skimmed off the top, charged people more taxes than they they should have, and they took the rest for themselves. They were the scum of the earth, the people that no one wanted to be associated with. And so the parable we find here today is profoundly offensive to the culture it was initially received in. But Jesus breaks the paradigm for us by showing us that it's the humble man That's rewarded, even in his own sin, and not the haughty man who, quote, does everything the right way and just checks all of the boxes. The self awareness of the tax collector was God, I need your help. I need to be saved. I can't do it on my own. If we're drowning in the deep end of the pool, are you going to be too prideful to say, somebody help me, somebody help me? Hopefully not, because then you'll drown and die. But the reality here is the exact same thing the tax collector was drowning in his own sin. And he reached up for help and he said, God, I don't have it together. Have mercy on me. That's self-awareness. That's something that we need to be more readily accepting of in our own lives, is being self-aware. Now, maybe you don't relate to the tax collector. As I just said, I'm I'm not the most most humble of people. And so I don't associate it really in terms of relating to the tax collector's plight in this story. And I relate more to the Pharisee, unfortunately. I, I see the blessings in others' lives and I think, man... I, I do a lot more to put myself in a position to be used for the kingdom than they do. I do a lot less sinful, overtly things than they do. I, Man, I'm doing all these great things. I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm doing whatever it needs to be done. Why are they getting the blessings of their heart or the desires of their heart? Why are they being blessed with those things? And I compare myself to them and I think they're down here, I'm up here. Clearly, I must be better. And the reality of that is as I'm doing that, I often am ignoring that person's ability to be used in the kingdom. And I'm putting myself on a pedestal, and therefore I'm probably not able to be used for the kingdom because I'm too prideful to be self-aware and admit, I've got my own problems. I've got my own issues. And so the fallacy in our Christian circles is that if we sing the songs, if we pray at the right times, then, then that is enough. We're, at least we're not that person. At least we're not Joe down the street doing this and that. And yes, of course, we have responsibilities and and obligations. We all have things that God has commanded us to do. But if we just stop there and we don't press through to be self-aware and realize that we have more to accomplish for the kingdom, then we're losing sight of what really God wants for us. Because it says that in Scripture that God wants immeasurably more for us not just what we've decided is enough, not just our goals and ambitions. God wants more and immeasurably more than that for us. And so the difference here is that the Pharisee did these things just because he was supposed to, not out of his love for the Lord. And we see the comparison to the tax collector, that he does these things. He came to the temple with a humble heart, and that's what we should emulate. But the thing I think that's most troubling here is that the Pharisee compares his actions to others and builds himself up at their expense. When we play this comparison game, there's kind of two sides of the story. I can compare myself to others and make myself feel good, or I can compare myself to others and make myself feel bad. I can look at somebody that's, quote, better looking, more athletic, more successful, makes more money, and I can make myself smaller. Or I can look at somebody and make them small. But I guess one question for us this morning is, are we doing so much in our lives to try to keep up with the Joneses that we forget to try to keep up with the Jesus? And that's something that has really hit me lately of, man, I've got some successful people that I'm surrounded with in my life, and I want what they, what they have. I want the house. I want the car. I don't want to have to pay off my house. I don't want to have to renovate my bathroom and, and save for, for six to eight to 10 months to do that. I want to be able to do it now. I want more money. I want more success. And I do so much looking outwardly that I forget that God is trying to do something inwardly in me. And he wants to use me where I'm at. Because it's often easy to see yourself as better than someone, and then we can flip it on its head and and go so far to the self-awareness that we see others as way more unattainable than what we can be. And they have way more. But the reality is God wants to use us exactly where we're at, Every chair in this room today that's filled, God wants you to be used exactly where you're at. And he's got more for you than you even realize. So are we too focused on being better than others that we forget our goal is to live up to Jesus and what God wants for us? Are we too busy comparing ourselves with others that we're actually making ourselves seem less off and we're ignoring the gifts that God has actually given us? Because comparison is the thief of joy. It really is. Comparison is the thief of joy. Anytime you're comparing yourself to anything or anyone other than Jesus, you're going to be let down. Or you're going to be putting yourself on a pedestal and putting yourself in a position where you are, in fact, ignoring something that God wants for you or ignoring something that God wants for someone else. Because if we do compare ourselves to others, we're giving Satan a foothold in our lives. Because we're either not acknowledging a deficiency in ourselves, we're putting that on someone else, whatever it might be. And if we do compare ourselves to others, we're at the same time judging them and allowing ourselves to lose sight of their value in the kingdom. So, one thing that kind of humbles me, as I mentioned not really having a a pride issue in my life, more of a humility issue, but coming to grips with some self-evaluative things... God doesn't need anyone in this room. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need me, he doesn't need you. Because he is God. He can accomplish any of his plans with or without you. Guess what, he's been doing it for thousands of years. He does it with or without you. And the great thing of that, though, is, in the comfort of that, is that while he doesn't need you, he still wants you. He invites you in to not only relationship, but into his kingdom work. Jesus didn't have to use the disciples Jesus didn't have to start a church that was going to revolutionize the world and do the kingdom work of the Father. He could have just done it himself. God didn't need to send his son. But guess what? He sent him to die for us so that we could be involved and experience not only freedom here, but eternal freedom and salvation. He wants us here and he wants us now. It's just a matter of, are we willing to acknowledge that it's not about us in that circumstance? Isaiah 26a says this, and I think it's, it's something that for, for me has become sort of a, a life passage to help humble me in these moments. And it says, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. It's not about us. It's not about what we can offer. Because nobody in this room has something that God doesn't already have available to him. Because he's God. He created you, he gave it to you. So that means at one point he had it, right? So, Probably still does. So, God wants us to be used by Him. And if we ask ourselves and we're honest with ourselves, do we love that reality because we love the gift or because we love the giver? Do we love the gift of salvation because it benefits us or are we in love with the giver who gave it to us? Are we putting ourselves and posturing ourselves in that manner to allow ourselves to commune more wholly with the Father? Or are we just grateful that God has provided our daily bread because then we don't go hungry? are we actually grateful to him and we actually respond out of that love? Do we pray, serve, worship out of the love for the Father or out of the desire to make ourselves look good in the church? Out of our desire to check the boxes of our spiritual life? If we look at the other person in this story, the tax collector, it's pretty clear that Jesus wants us to be more like him. And Jesus, in telling this story, clearly gives us the comparison of the two and says, be like the tax collector. It's okay that he's a sinner, because everybody is. But what Jesus is doing here is setting up a kingdom principle that I think is pretty simple. And he says, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, the sins you've committed, how far you've strayed, because guess what? You're still my child. I'm gonna pursue you, and I still love you. And I don't know if that's just for one person in the room, but when I was preparing for today, that was such a strong pull on my heart to make sure it was clear. That it doesn't matter the things you have done to this point. God is still after you, desires you, wants a relationship with you, and still loves you. He doesn't regret dying for you. He would do it again every day of the week and twice on Sunday because he loves you. Jesus says in Matthew Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, because I will give you rest. He's not talking about the ones who need rest that just check all the boxes and do all the good things. They are entitled to that rest as well because Jesus promises it. But he's saying it to the people who don't have it all together. If you don't have it all together this morning, join the club. It's okay. Jesus still wants to give you rest. Eternally and here on earth. Because he wants you to be loose of the, the chains that we've allowed ourselves to be bound with in our own sin our own struggle, and our lack of our own self-awareness. He wants you to be free of those things. So sometimes, as we look at the tax collector, we think, man, that's somebody I wish I could emulate, but I, I just don't, don't know how to get there. I don't know how to put myself out there, and I'm with you. Like I said, I don't have a lot of emotional you know, quotient for EQ. I don't have a big emotional quotient. But when I read things like this, it gives me more of a mind emotion because it allows me to to see God's true heart and in Romans 5 it says that while we were still sinners Christ died for the ungodly not just the godly so when I'm in my own issues my own doubts my own fears my own sin Christ died for that not just when I'm doing really well in my faith he died for us at our lowest point and our highest point And Jesus shows us the tax collector as a hero of faith, not because he was righteous, but because he was self aware. He came to the temple with nothing, but just an open heart, looking for that relationship. The tax collector didn't have it all together, and he knew his sin was between him and the Father, and so he acknowledged it. He turned to God, emptied himself, and said, I want more of you. That's the gospel. Go to him, confess your sin. And he's already died for you. And he wants you to experience that salvation. It's that easy. But the fact of the matter is the gospel is inclusive. The father wants all of his children and he loves all of his children equally. Do we love all of each other equally? Well, I'll be honest with you. I love my wife more than all of you. (laughs) But I still love each and every one of you because that's what I'm called to do. And it might manifest and look a lot different. But he still calls us to love each other the same way. We have some things in common in this. And so in Romans 3.23, one of the most commonly used passages to kind of get us all on the same page and help us understand our need for God, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People don't say amen to that. But it's true. We're all sinners. We've fallen short. Sometimes we use that in our own comparison game. And I actually rewrote this in, in uh, the BIV, the Brock-inspired version. And I actually rewrote it to say, this is kind of how I actually view it sometimes. And it'll be, all have sinned, some more than others, to be honest. And all fall short of the glory of God, some fall further than others. And I use it almost to make myself seem better. Like, yeah, I've sinned and I fall short of the glory of God, but I haven't fallen as far as that guy. And it's another way of comparing ourselves, but look at what you're doing and creating this gap where I'm not loving that person by comparing myself to them and making myself seem better. Because here's the reality that I think this is the most ignored verse in the Bible. We're so quick to use Romans 3.23 to point out everybody's sins, we forget what comes after in Romans 3.23 and 24. So I'm going to read it together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do not share the first part without the but. But guess what? Jesus died for you. And all have fallen short. You can't share the first verse without the second. You can't compare and tell somebody they're a sinner without giving them the grace that God has already extended to them. And when we play this comparison game, we often just want to use that first verse, whether it's about ourselves or others. And we forget to give ourselves the slack that God has already given us by sending his son. You cheapen what Jesus has done on the cross when you compare yourself to others or when you compare others to yourself. You cheapen what Jesus did because you're taking away the grace that he's already extended by dying for them. That's just the reality. So if we humble ourselves, are we self-aware enough to realize we need that help and grace? Do we spend too much time focusing on the things of you know, this earth, what we should be doing, rather than just getting to work and, and listening to the Spirit move? I'm reminded of this story of Mary and Martha, Uh, When Martha is frantically getting the house together and running around doing all these things and and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, Martha, calm down. Come sit. Look at Mary. Look what she's doing. And I'm often reminded of that when I'm trying so hard to compare myself to others, to try to get what others have, or to try to make myself seem like I got it all together by checking these Christian boxes. Jesus just wants us to sit at his feet. If we start there, the only way to go is up because we're starting in a place of communion with the Father, communion with the Savior. So in the parable we read earlier, we get a sense that God is rewarding this tax collector. says he went home justified before God that day because he came to grips with his sin. And I think sometimes when we maybe read a parable like this and we come to that conclusion, that we don't know where to go from here because if we all just shaved our heads and put ash on our head and tore our clothes and wore sackcloth every day, probably wouldn't get a lot else done if we just focused on our sin. But again, remind yourself of Romans 3.24, that you are redeemed because of what Christ has done. So to kind of bring this full circle, the three things from the beginning were be self-aware. Be self-aware in your life. Whether it's to realize your own sin, Or it's realized when you're only realizing the sin of others. Be self-aware. Even to a fault at times. You need to do it even when it hurts. And maybe that means you, every single day, you have to write out, here's what God has blessed me with, to give you a sense that he loves you. Maybe it's, here are the ways that Satan's really trying to tempt me. Maybe it's setting an alarm every day for, you know, just the same time, to pray for 30 seconds that God would give you humility to see people as he does. I don't know what it looks like for you, but we need to be more self-aware even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. Second thing was to try to see others the way Jesus does, even when it's difficult. To see people as Christ does, to love people as Christ does. How often when you go into a meeting, go into a room, go into school, whatever it is, how often are you thinking, what can I get out of this relationship? I think that all the time. What would it look like if we went into something, those meetings, that school, whatever it is, and thought, what can I give? How can I serve people? Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. I think that's sort of at the root of how we see people as Jesus does. Stop thinking of how we can get things out of people or out of relationships instead of what can I give and offer in this relationship. Finally, The third principle that I think we can see here is that God loves you no matter what. No matter what. And you could put a period on that. And you could say that a hundred times over the course of an hour, and it still not be enough to fully demonstrate how much God loves you. So the reality is for us today, if you're like the tax collector or the Pharisee, Jesus has a simple message for all of us, and that's there is nothing you can do to earn or lose the love of the Father. And his desire is for us to be in relationship with him. He loves each and every one of us, no matter what. 1 John 4 says that we love because he first loved us. Is that true for us today? Do we love others well? Do we love ourselves well? In identification of how much the Father loves us. Let's pray. God, just grateful for your word grateful for the ways that you remind us um, of the many ways that you love us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. I'm grateful for your just constant reminder in my life that while I am insufficient and insignificant, you have called me and made me feel significant. You have equipped me to make me feel sufficient. And I'm grateful for that. God, I pray that you would enable all the people in this room today to view others, to love others the way that Christ does and the way that you do. I pray that you'd help us all to be more in tune with your spirit and to move us in ways that would allow us to, to see others for their potential in the kingdom and not to compare ourselves with anyone but you. Amen.